Hey everybody, I'm Tom Corbett. And I'm Justin St. Louis. And this is Uncommon Deeds. Welcome everybody to the first ever two-parter in a week. We got a full episode for you today. And uh, if you're listening to this on the day it came out, it is a Wednesday, not a Friday. And part two will come out just two days from now on Friday. Isn't that something? We're so big now. Something like that. Two days. (laughs) Something like that. Maybe it has a little more to do with the guest. Justin and I started this interview with Brian. And we've interviewed Brian, I don't know how many times. Oh, man. When he was over the years. Yeah. And the joke, or not really joke, just honesty was before we talked to him, we'd say, what one question do we really want to know about? Because we're not going to have time probably for a second question. (laughs) And we talked about it leading up to recording with him. We would joke about what, what three or four questions do you want answered in this hour and a half? And we started recording and I kind of led into the first question like we always do with, hey, How did motorsports come into your life? And I looked down, and we were probably about 20 minutes in, and we're still kind of on that question. And I wrote to Justin, literally 15, 20 minutes in, like, oh, crap. There is no way this is going to (laughs) be one part. Yeah. And Uh, truth be told, we looked down three hours later as we were wrapping up. And like, oh, God. Yeah, definitely what two parts. Day is it? Yeah, oh. it was, and it was weird. It was just a fully weird interview with stuff going on. We had our first child, child run in. Yep. yep, which is surprising. It took you know seven weeks. Justin's got a toddler at home. I have three toddlers at home, and we record these after bedtime. In theory, in theory, sometimes Justin's daughter's just his wife's bringing her to bed. As we're starting, mine are usually tucked in, and we were about half hour into this one, and I heard some crying from the room, and I knew my wife was already. She went to sleep pretty much when the kids went to sleep, and I gave. And it was a couple minutes later, and I saw a little little cry face come around the corner, and my daughter Izzy was had a bad dream, and Brian's going answering a question, and. I picked up Izzy, and I'm giving her some cuddles on the Zoom. On the Zoom. Brian did not miss a beat, just kept going. No. I'm like, all right. I'm trying to like, okay, Izzy, ready for bed. You think you can go back? Carry me. I'm like, okay. But then then we didn't see you for 15 minutes. (laughs) Yeah, I did bring her in, get her in bed, get her comfortable, and I came back, and Brian was still on the same question. Same question. Yeah, there was some. It's the we're longest. Not, by the way, like, and Brian will get this. Like, we're not picking on him. These are these were great questions and answers. Yeah, it's not. It's not a dull. These are not no, dull episodes no this week. Though I will also say, I have to put on these episodes when I upload them to all the places where you listen know, our podcast. I know where you're going with this. Yeah, I have to click whether or not it's a explicit episode, whether there's any cursing. 
if you don't put it and then people can hear a couple curses and complain, we could get pulled yeah. from these platforms. There is no question that this is a explicit episode. Uh-huh. If you are listening to our podcast in the car, bringing your kids to school on a Friday morning like I do. Now's not the time. And that's right. I listen to our podcast first thing in the morning on Friday on the way to school. If you have impressionable children, maybe not the episode to share with them. This is a NSFW episodes. And there's nothing not safe for work. There's nothing raunchy or no in that direction. Just a lot of a lot of f bombs. Dropping some f bombs. Brian had a good time with it. We did too. <laughs> it was it was fun. Um, and like Tom said, these are not boring answers. They're long, uh, but they're not boring. And it's an eight time champion, so he's got a lot of stories. Um, you know, he's one of the greats, and we were looking forward to this one. Uh, and it it more it more than delivered uh everything that we expected it, it was good and i will say now we're now 7 i don't know what we're i haven't decided yet as we're recording this open whether i'm going to do this as episode 7 and 8 or 7a 7 7b 7172 yeah well no that's just 71 and 72 there just all right um i haven't decided yet but we're still like we say, we're figuring out the rhythm. And a lot of times I'll let you kind of lead and then I'll try to kind of bring in some different aspects. You have the stats and the different stuff. And this episode really threw me <laughs> through me. You don't hear a ton, ton from old Tom. No, in these episodes, I, uh, I was partially because <laughs> I had a child come in at one point. Yeah. But then, I was just losing track sometimes on the answers where we were going. Or you'd think of something like, ooh, I'd like to ask this off that. But Brian was so on it that he was we didn't going have into questions. the next questions. You're right. Yep. And then I'm trying to figure out where we are on the time and how we we didn't plan well enough in the event of a filibuster. <laughs> uh so I'm try- and I'm trying to figure it out. So a lot of times I just left it kind of I let Justin steer the ship where he wanted to go cuz I know there's certain things when Justin sends me my two pages of notes, there's certain things he could care less about and there's certain stuff if I skip it, I can hear I can hear that little you Attention. son of a gun in his voice <laughs> when after the person answers that question he goes, "Well, that's great, but let's go back a minute." <laughs> Because I skipped over one of the things that he actually really wanted to hear. So with this going so many different directions, I let Justin no steer the ship that. a little a little more yeah. than usual. So there were some and stretches without Tom. We can joke about this because uh, immediately after the show, Brian, t- and this is like midnight at this point, Brian, he messaged me. He's like, did I talk too much? My wife says I talk too much. Like, no, man, you're good. <laughs> Or I think you said yes, and you're yes, good, though. Yes, you did. It was great. No, but it it really no. was. It was a great conversation. And, and we hadn't talked to Brian since 2015. I think I've messaged with him a couple of times here and there. Um, he's got a weird birthday. He's, he's leap year birthday. So I always, you know, pick on him about that kind of thing. But we hadn't talked to him in almost six years. So it was good to catch up with him. Um, yeah. and, and I think, you know, just let it roll at that point. Yeah. 
which we did because Tom, like you said, you messaged me halfway through the show. You're like, there's no way this is going to be a one parter. This is a this is a two parter. Yeah, so just and at that point, we're like, okay, we'll just then then screw it. Let's just go. We'll just do it. And then we hit about two forty, and we're like, oh boy. <laughs> And we're like, oh, okay, it's time. Reel it in, <laughs> wrap it up. So, I hope you enjoy. This was, like he said, a really fun episode to do. Uh, we're excited to see how doing the two episodes in one week, yeah. albeit just one person in two parts. How you guys like that? Let us know. Uh, but without further ado, as I tend to say, Justin introduced today's guest. In the history of the American Canadian tour, there are three names that stand above the rest, Robbie Crouch, Gene Paul Sear, and Brian Hoare. And this guy has the most championships of any of them. And in the modern era, the most wins of any of them, you name it, he's won it, the milk bowl, the fall foliage and everything else in between. Uh, this guy has the two most iconic cars in the last 25 years, the number 45 Goss Dodge car and the RPM Motorsports 37, even though those cars haven't been around for years and years. They're still the ones everybody thinks of. And joining us for episode seven on Uncommon Deeds, the eight-time ACT champion, Brian Hoare. Welcome. Thanks for having me, guys. So we usually kick it off, as I say, every week with just kind of getting an idea of when motorsports kind of, you remember it coming into your life. Yeah, motorsports came into my life really early. Uh, my dad was into it um, right from the get-go. Um, and had me into it early. Uh, you know, we, we weren't the kind that were watching football on Sundays. We were always watching some sort of motorsports and, and, um, he had dirt bikes, got me on dirt bikes really early. Um, I grew up riding snowmobiles and, um, and then going to Catamount stadium. We had a family that was involved in racing. My uncle Frankie was on, uh, was a big part of Bobby Dragon's crew. And, and so we, you know, we went to the racetracks. I remember going to Catamount in particular, very, very early in life and, and uh, through the seventies and early eighties um, until I got into, uh, you know, probably my teenage years. And then that faded away because uh, I, I know we were pretty involved in some other summer sports, meaning boats and, and, um, and still in the snowmobiling in the winter and, and four wheelers and, and um, whatnot in the summer. But uh, you know, it wasn't until uh, much later uh, toward the end of high school that uh, racing even, uh, kind of entered our lives uh and my dad wanted to get involved in it um i think kind of as a way to keep me around right after high school i mean i was in my senior year in high school and i remember him approaching me so that was that's really where racing came into my life um but it was certainly a, a big part of our lives and and what we were interested in um you know i always said i've grown up with a gasoline addiction and and um so anything with a motor uh, was something of interest to me and uh, so it was pretty, pretty early in life. Conventional team sports were never in there. It was always kind of something with a motor. I hate stick and ball sports. <laughs> no, I mean, mostly because I sucked at them. I really was not very good. I mean, I played baseball my entire life. I was never very good at it. I tried soccer one time and I'm like, Oh, uh, you had to run. And back then I didn't like running later on in life. I did. But anyways, I, uh, yeah, I yeah, we didn't watch football. I mean, I, if I went to my grandfather's house, there was always football on. I was, I was like, okay, I gotta go find something to do. Um, 
just wasn't into it. You know, my whole family wasn't into it. We were very active, uh, but it was very active doing things. And, and in the summertime, it was, there was always, you know, my dad had dirt bikes and ran these uh, time, I forget what they call them, the trial trials or something. Uh, it was like uh, not a motocross race, but um, he was involved in that uh, when I was really young, but uh, he got me on a dirt bike early on. And um, I actually tried racing a four wheeler a handful of times, probably in the mid eighties, um, had a couple of tracks and, um, I wasn't super good at it. I mean, I, I enjoyed it, but, um, you know, there was a lot of other things going on in our summers. We had a little cabin that we used to spend time at and, uh, just, um, fishing. We actually liked to fish a lot back then. And so we were on a boat often in Lake Champlain, but, um, yeah, again, it wasn't until I was like a senior in high school. My dad, I remember him coming to me and saying, Hey, um, how would you like to go racing? And I'm like, well, what kind of racing? And he's like, stock car racing. Let's build, let's build a couple of cars. And, and at that time, it was kind of the mindset of uh, maybe a dirt car, maybe a street stock, something like that. But just the idea of going in circles to me at that moment, on, ironically as it is, just didn't interest me. I was like, well, what about drag racing? That sounds like fun to me because I used to cruise all the time. I think I single-handedly helped create the cruising laws in Burlington back then. Cause you know, ironically I was going in circles, but it was all about the drag racing. <laughs> but anyways, uh, yeah. It, and, and so he's like, well, no, I'm going to go stock car racing. So he went over and checked out airborne raceway right after ACT bought it and paved it. And, um, without me, I went and checked it out and, and just immediately decided he was going to build a build or buy a tiger car and try it. And, um, I was only half interested. And eventually this is uh, back when the tigers were the, the lead weekly division. Yeah. Yeah. 1990, Yeah. It was what turned into the late models and, and uh, had the big right front tire on them. And, you know, he bought this, uh, I don't remember who he bought it from. I, I I'm, I'm blanking, but it was, you know, it was a relatively new car. It was a Buick Skylark, um, ugly little thing, but um, it was a cool little car, safe car. And I uh, didn't know the first thing about that thing. Um, no, nobody did. Uh, but we, you know, started, I know he started recruiting a couple of guys and, um, you know, a couple of my friends and I, as we graduated from high school, well, it was actually before we were still in school. We hadn't graduated yet when he started racing it. It was 1990, the spring of 90, as I recall. And, and, um, I definitely remember going to one race. That was the one that hooked me. I remember going to St. Air. It was early in the season. Of course, it was a big track. We went to Canada. We're in the pits. You know, we didn't know the first thing about stock cars. Um, and we went in there, and it was it was uh, it was really really eye opening. The ACT tour was there. The road, the old pro stocks. Um, it was. I remember what you know. It was it was a few moments at that racetrack that really got me. And it was the ACT tour cars that that did it for me because they were just so badass. Um, big tires, low to the ground. And I actually remember, this is going to be kind of funny because uh, I'm sure I've never told this guy this story. Um, I know him quite well, and you've actually had him on your show already. Um, but this young guy comes driving by, and at the time, I didn't know who the hell he was. Um, it said Derek Lynch over his door. And I remember, you know, this way back, you could buy these rubberized black and pink sunglasses, and he was wearing that. Yeah. And he, <laughs> he could be over this damn steering wheel, and he went came by, my buddy uh, Peter Abear and I, and uh, we literally watched this kid drive by us. And, of course, it, in our minds, he was 15 years old. He was, he, was, he was our age. But, you know, just it looked like some kid driving by. 
And all I remember is, whoa, 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 whoa. And I'm just, this, that thing chugging by. And I'm like, you could feel the ground underneath you as you went by. And I'm like, that is fucking awesome. I want to do that. <laughs> that is so cool. And that was hooked. I was done, man. I, you know, I started, I went to every race with my dad and um, followed him all year. And uh, thank God he likes hunting more than racing always. Cause at the end of the year, he said, I'm going to Montana. Like I have for the last 20 years or whatever hunting. And um, the last race at airborne, um, you know, if you, if you'd like, I'd let you drive my car, you and the, the whole crew can go and take the car and you can drive it. Now, mind you, I, I, I had built, that summer, we had built an enduro car. Uh, my buddy Peter and I had built two enduro cars, and we went to the uh, enduro over at Airborne that year. Had an absolute blast. Absolute blast. Came out of that race, and I had like three three dents on my car. And I did really well, except I, uh, I think I blew a hose, a radiator hose at some point in the race and had to find another one and put it on and get back out there. Uh, my buddy Peter comes in, and there's no bumpers on the car. The fenders are hanging off the thing. Um, you know, it was just a total shit show. And I remember his dad coming up to both of us and going, well, I guess we can see who the race car driver is going to be. <laughs> <laughs> but I got a classic picture of me sitting on the hood of that car. And, uh, so that was the start of it. And, uh, I don't even remember how I did in my dad's car, uh, at the end of the year. I just don't remember being excited to drive it and driving it. I have no idea how I did that, uh, that fall race, but, um, uh, that led to my dad, um, you know, being a Dodge dealer, he wanted to build the Dodge. Uh, and, and very few people had done it. So he set about, uh, buying a brand new car and building a Dodge motor and going into the 91 season. And he had me where he wanted me hooked. So, you know, he literally was like, you're not leaving now. Yeah. Yeah. No, he knew I wasn't leaving then, man. He had me and, uh, and, and I was hook, line and sinker. So, um, you know, we, uh, we took on the Buick Skylark and, and, uh, and that was, that was it, man. I was, I was definitely hooked at that point. Yeah. So that's, that's 1991, uh, that you get your start and you didn't win any races that year, but your dad was one of the top guys over at airborne. Yeah. He came out of the box really good with that. That car was, um, really fast. And, and again, as I think I mentioned earlier, I, I, that CRS is kicking in, but, um, you know, I, I somehow think Chuck B was involved in that car of his, um, you know, my cousin, uh, joy, uh, the Woodwards were always a big part of my racing or our racing early on. And I, as I recall, um, I don't know if joy got involved in that first Dodge motor or if it was Cagle because we did start with Dave Cagle building our motors and you know what? It was definitely Cagle. <laughs> it was definitely Dave Cagle. Nothing against the guy, uh, but the, the Dodge motors were different for him. And but my dad had a really good uh, good car. And I, God, my memory serves me. Uh, yeah, by the end of that year, he was he was doing really well. Yeah, yeah, no, he was he was definitely one of the top guys. Um, you know, he won four races one year, which is, I mean, that's that's cranking. And yeah, I, consider I, 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 that there's forty cars in the field every week. Yeah, I would probably guess that was more like 1992 because he came alive that. We, uh, we always laughed cause he, he got that thing so hooked up on the bottom and, uh, it was a truck arm car and I had a three point car uh, a couple of years later and we could never get mine to bite the same coming off the corner. And man, the, the Dodgers had really good low end torque and I couldn't put it to use early on. Uh, it took us a while to get that three point, uh, rear end hooked up 
but he could. Man, coming off turn two at Airborne, man, he made us all look silly. And he would make this dive bomb. My dad was was uh, you know, pretty fearless, and um, and his his idea of uh, if he had the position was he was underneath you, and it didn't really matter how far. <laughs> and you go into turn three, and and uh, usually by the time the center of turn three, if he got underneath you, and and you originally thought it was your position to come down, you lost. And um, yeah, he was uh, he didn't make a lot of friends on some of those moves, but everybody got to know pretty quick. If he pointed it low coming off turn two, you better be prepared because he he man he could get a run off turn two over there. It was pretty awesome. CD Koval always used to say, "If the radiator cap fits, the rest will follow." So. <laughs> that's that was his motto man eight, eight tires turn better than four so <laughs> and i looked it up while you're giving me the answer and uh actually he won four in 94 so yeah i was gonna he, say i yeah, thought it was this is this is later on yeah yeah either way you guys were in victory lane a lot both of you and 92 you really started to hit your stride and um uh, you won back-to-back races at airborne one of them was a tour show and then st croix about a month later i mean that's and that's the first year of the late models and things are starting to expand with what was then known as the international series which is now the the act late model tour but um you know it looked like on paper you're doing pretty good for a sophomore well that was you know what happened was was really cool uh because it led to some really great relationships and with some people that you know very well um in uh between 91 and 92 at that point we decided to build a second dodge and we bought a car from stevie levitt and to my knowledge it was the last uh late model car that he built up in the northeast before he moved south um it was uh it certainly was one of the last if it wasn't the last before he moved south and and went to work for hendrick motorsports at that time and it was a three-point car it was a great car uh but we bought the chassis brought it back and and um we had started a relationship with uh, some guy named Ed Companion, Mr. C, the yeah. man, the myth, the legend. Yeah. And so my car actually went to the Burlington High School, and they built the body and put the body on that car for me over the wintertime. And some of the guys that were in that particular class uh, was a guy that ended up working for our body shop for years. Um, but more importantly, uh, you know, a friend for life, uh, Jeremy Duye, was in that class. Oh, my God. Yep. So in 1992, we came out of the box with this brand new uh, Dodge. And um, and so that was a big deal for me, obviously. And uh, it was a really nice car. It took some, it took some work, um, but we ran that. That was my car. That car in 1992 that was brand new in 92 is the car that I drove all the way through the 2000 ACT season. Really? I drove it 92 through 2000. We had one other car that I drove. You know, uh, well, other than my dad's cars, we built one other brand new car that I'd never liked that much um, and never ran it much. But uh, that was the car we kept freshening it. Um, but that was the car that I drove all of my ACT career in 2000. We sold it when we moved on to the other series. But um, who, who, yeah, we, who bought it? Who bought it in 2000? Uh, I want to say, God, who was his name? He was down at Canaan, Canaan Speedway. Matter of fact, I'd love to find that car again. I really would. Um, a lot of history. That car's got a ton of history. It's got uh, five ACT championships and probably should have had a six. We'll get to that. <laughs> it's uh, a lot of race wins. I can't remember the guy's name. I, it's just, for some reason, I want to say Chicky or Chick. Oh, uh, Chick Henry? Yeah, I think it was Chick Henry. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so if anybody knows Chick Henry um, and whatever happened to that car, I'd love to find that car again. 
but um, yeah, so that was, that was our start in 92. We, you know, that was the, uh, as I recall, the official start of the, um, I think they call it the international series. And in 92, they transitioned from 91. It was the flying tiger division to 92. There were the late models with four equal tires. Um, so there were some good changes there. You know, I, I jumped in at the right time because all these tiger guys had been used to the setups with those right front tires. And, so there's a little equalizer going on there, even with the veterans, uh, although some of them picked it up incredibly fast. Steve Miller, uh, Norm Andrews, all those right. guys, yeah. Brent Dragon. Uh, but um, it was a good time to kind of transition in that. And uh, that's when Tom created the ACT International Series, which was our little uh, late model series that turned into, obviously, uh, the, the ACT tour that we know today. Um and uh, I was in the running for the championship that first year too, in, in '92, which was really cool. Um, as I recall, it was uh, was it Brent or Dave Wickham? I'm, I'm totally Dave Wickham. Yep. Yeah, and we went to Beach Ridge, had a problem, and we had a lot of motor issues early on, a lot of motor issues. Um, and I think it was the '92 season that I think it was the '92 season I blew up five engines. Good God! And my dad blew up two. You know, they weren't kind wow. of ups, but I mean, we're talking major problems. And, and uh, again, the Dodges had boiling issues. There was a lot of nuances to them. They made some good power, but initially uh, the guys that uh, Dave Cagle just, you know, jumped in and, and dug in and, and really tried to learn it. Um, so it was a real struggle to begin with, just trying to figure out how to keep these things together. And, but uh, we, we did have a lot of success uh, pretty early on with those things. Who did you lean on at that point? Uh, among the veterans drivers oh god completely uh well i mean there's a lot there was a lot of them and and you know because i i had some uh massive fans I, I was a massive fan of a bunch of drivers and so every once in a while i got a chance to to race them but the, who i leaned on um was no, i don't mean i don't mean eight tires better than four lean on i mean who did you have yeah no mentor uh, <laughs> Norm, Norm yeah. was uh you know, uh, a, a lot like my dad in a lot of ways, um, he, he, just a complete and utter smart ass, but he was very talented, very confident. Um, and, you know, I, I, uh, my dad and him hit it off early on. Um, ironically, my, my father-in-law-to-be was always part of his team early on. That's how I got to know him. I knew him long before I knew my wife. Um, but uh, Norm Andrews. You know, he was there and I beat him for my first ever race win. And I remember like get him giving me a big hug in victory lane, you know, being super proud of me kind of thing. So it was, it was a pretty cool deal. Um, you know, he was somebody I would consider a mentor. There was uh, there was a lot of them back then, but that was, that was one that kind of stands out in my mind. Well, And, and you said you grew up at Catamount, so you must've seen Norm win a few races back in, in the day. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, all those guys, there was a lot of really talented racers and, and uh, with a ton of experience. And, you know, it, it, it's funny because when I look at the, uh, when you look at the NASCAR guys and you think about the Dale Earnhardt, the type of driver he was to me, there was a bunch of guys that were like that back then at the short tracks. And Norm was one of those guys. You just don't mess with Norm Andrews. You know, Absolutely. He, you still don't No, exactly. And, uh, but, but I had a tremendous amount of respect for him because he reminded me a lot of my dad. They hit it off, you know, and, and uh, just no holds barred. We'll race you clean. We'll race you hard. Don't mess with us, you know, or we'll make you pay. But um, it was, uh, you know, there was a ton of experience back then in the fields. Uh, but it was interesting, too, because, you know, I've told a lot of people back then. I got in the car and I was scared shitless to spin out a wreck because, well, I mean, 
I, I just didn't want to do that. Number one, but number two, well, that meant I would have to work my ass off fixing the car if I wrecked. Yeah. So, so I wanted to keep my nose clean, but it did take me, but one or two races to figure out, hell, I don't even have to pass a car. And I passed 15 cars over there. And you know, when there's 44 cars starting, yep. I guess last, if I just keep my nose clean, I passed half the cars and I didn't even have to work doing it, you know? And, and, uh, and I learned pretty quick to, uh, keep the fenders on the car and, and, um, and, and again, one of my mentors, I remember very, very early on, uh, talking to me, um, I was in the, we tried a couple of early races at Thunder Road, which was, as everybody knows, is quite, quite a, it's not uh, airborne. Yeah, it's not airborne and it's scary as shit. And it's just so different. So here I am thinking I'm, you know, getting pretty good at airborne. And I go to Thunder Road and it's very humbling. But I remember sitting in the stands one time and, and, uh, I, I assumed the ACT tour was there, uh, because next thing I know, I'm sitting in, you know, almost next to Robbie Crouch, who is a, you know, childhood hero of mine and Tom Tiller sitting there. You want to talk about the veterans, right? Ooh, royalty. Yeah. And so this pre, uh, Tom Curley driver meetings, before it started there, I don't, we just got into this conversation and, and it was about looking ahead and paying attention and, and watching for wrecks and looking not in front of your car, but looking way ahead. And I never forgot that. I never forgot that. I mean, I've gotten every car I've ever gotten into and I've always tried to figure out how I'm going to be able to see out of this car and see way ahead on the track. Cause I'm going to plan my escape route well before uh, the other guy. And uh, that's, that's been kind of a, um, something I've always tried to do pretty well. Um, I've tried and been maybe more successful than, uh, than not at times, but, uh, so I was trying to, you, you know, you, it's well known that you've always had a big crew and, and some talented guys working on your cars and stuff, but, um, you had just mentioned, you know, if you tear it up, you got to fix it. How much, how much of the work did you do? Well, early on we had, uh, my cousin, Neil, who was a very good friend, came on board. He's younger than me. So I graduated in 90. I want to say he graduated in 93, if I recall. And right after he graduated, uh, this is Frankie Woodard's son. And, you know, Frankie's an engineer and worked on Bobby Draggart's cruise. And so Neil came on board uh, very early on. We were always close growing up, um, at least in the later part of the years when, when he got a little older. Um, and we gave him a job, his, uh, as I recall, his first full-time job. And it was working on race cars. Now, this is a guy that had zero experience. So, you know, you have to understand um, every night we all, you know, we were young guys then. We were single. That's all we did. We lived in the race shop uh, down on Shelburne Road. And so every night we were working on race cars. It wasn't like one night a week. He was working on race cars all the time. Neil didn't know what the hell he was doing early on. I mean, the first year or two, he was, uh, he was very new to it. Uh, later in life, he was unbelievably talented fabricator, chassis man, setup guy, you name it. Uh, but um, back then, we all worked on him. You know, Mr. C, Ed, Ed came on board in the summers and helped us. Um, in that 92, or well, actually, it was, I think it was the 91 season, he came on board. In 92, he was there and brought Jeremy, Jeremy Duye. And, of course, we just built this young crew. Now, I'll tell you one of the challenges my dad had, and he always said, was, you know, I had a tremendous advantage because, um, for one, I think people automatically kind of wanted to help the young guy that was doing well rather than the old guy. But I had lots of single young guy friends that wanted to work on race cars. He didn't have so many middle-aged men that wanted to come work on race cars. So <laughs> all my friends wanted to work on my race car, not necessarily his. So that caused a little friction there with my dad and I at one point. But, um, 
yeah, it was, uh, we were, that's all we did. You know, I, I remember early on, it was, uh, um, it didn't take me long to figure out if you wrecked it, you fixed it. And that kind of mentality, uh, um, <laughs> the first thing I remember is that damn Buick Skylark had that fiberglass nose mm-hmm. and you used to, and you had to take and you had to take the headlights out, so you had to build these stupid, the stupid headlight fillers, and then and, and that that carried on to the Dodge Aries body. Yeah. And these stupid headlight fillers, we were building these aluminum headlight fillers all the time because I kept knocking them out. It was so infuriating. I was so happy when we went to that LeBaron rubberized nose, and I could beat the crap out of it to throw. But. Um, yeah, you know, you know, I it wasn't that I wanted to work on the race car all the time, but it, I shouldn't say that. We had a really good time doing it. We we were pretty stupid and did a lot of fun things, and but um, and the whole crew was very close because we partied hard and, and worked hard. But uh, it was uh, it was uh, it was pretty awesome because we had, you know, we always joke because because be, between Ed Companion and my uncle Frankie, um, with the exception of those two, you know, I think our average age was, you know you know it went up by one year every year it was literally 18 and 19 and 20 i mean i you know if you took those guys out because um we just started with a bunch of 18 year olds and and the and the team grew so yeah so we go to uh the next year and you've got your first championship 93 but it came about in a really weird way didn't it <laughs> i have no idea <laughs> seriously I... you really can't remember anything can you the story no, that I... i've told is that or that i've been told is that you were you weren't even in town when you found out you were the champion well that's true i was uh i was at college in michigan um yeah i was in midland michigan uh, at northwood university um when I found out. So it was really weird. Yes. Um, and it was very anticlimactic and there was no big celebration. Uh, we had to wait till I came home to celebrate, but, um, I can't remember the circumstances that led to that. So you probably have that help me out. I well, can't I, I, I was I got- hoping that you would remember on this because stupid shit. No, I think it's, um, the last race was rained out or canceled or something and you were going to miss it. Yeah, I had, I, there was two years there that uh, I was going to miss a race or two. And, you know, I, obviously, uh, yeah, I think that was the case. And I'm pretty sure I was in my, uh, in, in, in uh, at school doing rain dances, hoping for rain, not the anti rain dance. Yeah. But yeah, it was, uh, it was weird, but, um, but still exciting. You know, we were still growing. It was, we were just a bunch of jackasses that were just starting to think we knew what we were doing and, and, uh, and having some success early on. So it was fun. What's, uh, what's college in Michigan like as a race car driver from Vermont? Are you getting any, any cred around the, uh, mean streets of Detroit? No, there was, it was, uh, what was cool was in Midland, Michigan, if you ever, you know, cause you're really excited to go look it up on the map. It's about 20 minutes away from how racing enterprises, I will say that. Okay. So I, went and visited how racing enterprises cause I had to, um, and check that out. Uh, there was a couple of racetracks I went to out there and watched some really fun races. Um, cause they used to run these, um, like super late model outlaw cars with these, they're kind of like the dirt late model bodies and they're so freaking fast. 
But um, so I went to a few of those races, watched those races around there. But Michigan, uh, what I what I was said about Michigan, it was uh, a lot like Vermont in many ways where I was. And, uh, you know, when you ask people where they were from in Michigan, they always hold their hand up and they go oh, right about here, here. It took me a little while to figure out why the hell they kept pointing at their hand. But I finally figured it out. Midland's about right here. They were uh, it was flat. It was just fucking flat. So, you know, the vegetation all looked the same. They got freaking snow and wind and rain and sun like we did here, but it was flat. It was boring. I love mountains. Any particular reason why you decided to head head there for college? Or did you just kind of want to get oh, a, a little start, ways, I, get away a little there. bit? Yeah, I started at Johnson State College, and uh, and that was a great party school. And I was uh, studying business and beer, and probably more beer than business. Um and, uh, you know, about two years in, uh, Northwood University was known for their automotive marketing program out there. And it was specifically for folks like me that had people like my dad in the car business that thought they might like to get in the car business. So they were really, really oriented, specialized oriented um, uh, business school is what they were. So it was, it was great because they were tied so close to the big three automotive sectors and, and uh, the, you know, the automotive industry out there really supported Northwood University. Um, it also happened to be the home of Dow Chemical Company. So it was a really um, interesting little town, uh, very, very upscale town because, uh, because of the, the uh, Dow Chemical Company's headquarters. But, uh, you know, I know that's why I went out there was automotive marketing, running a dealership. So how how often are you traveling back and forth to race at that point i mean is it is it a grind or is it relatively easy no it was you know i mean at school uh, i i think as i recall i don't think i ever traveled home for a single race as the i don't remember traveling home for any single one race um i think it was made pretty clear that your racing will wait your school will you know my dad just laid the law down this time you're going to go finish. When I, when I went out to Michigan, I stopped partying. I really did. I, I got serious about it. But the, the school was amazing. I really, really enjoyed it out there. And I studied hard and got really good grades. So I did really well. But um, I don't think I ever came home for a race. You know, it was a matter of if you're going to miss a race, you're going to miss a race. And and that's the way it's going to be. You've only got uh, a couple more years of this thing. And, and by the uh, end of 94, you're done. So just buckle down and get it done. So I guess it's a damn good thing you had that rain out in 93 then. Damn good thing. Damn good. <laughs> uh, then, you know, you, you, you won that championship. Um, but more importantly, um, you really started to, you know, I, I, like I said, you hit your stride in 92, but 93, you won twice at San Air. Um, and you won a race over at Airborne as well. Uh, but you also got a win at Grove Tona at Riverside, which is the opposite of, what you'd grown up on. And that, I mean, it's high bank quarter mile, tight, tight, tight. Um, as opposed to the wide open spaces of airborne and, and San air. So that must've, you know, you're starting to diversify there. You must've felt pretty good about something like that. Well, it didn't take me long in my career to figure out that I really like going to different tracks, first of all. And, um, you know, everybody always likes to ask, what's your favorite track? Um, the next different track was, was typically what I was wanting to say in my own mind. Um, usually I'd give some cookie cutter response like Thunder Road or, or Airborne or something, but I mean, truly I, I love going to different tracks. I love the diversity. I didn't want to race the same track every day or every week. Uh, so 
I like the challenge of it. I like uh, going. I like the. I love just going to a different track and and uh, and learning uh, the different lines and learning how to get around it. And and I I felt like I, I adapted to tracks really quick, which was fun because you know what I what I realized with early on in the international series is we're talking about a bunch of guys that although they had a lot of experience uh and a lot more than me but it was primarily at you know some of them were just diehard unbelievable racers at thunder road and some of them were incredible races at airborne um but they weren't so incredible when they went to the other track either airborne or thunder road nor were they so incredible when they went to some of these other tracks and and so it seemed like it kind of evened the playing field a little bit when you went went against these guys and went to a new track and everybody's like oh shit i don't know how to get around this place and i don't know what the setup is and um and again then you go to these tracks and you're racing against some local and, and they're really fast so that challenge I mean, because that's what i remember about grove tona was uh i can't remember the guy's name billy 33 car mitchell billy mitchell yeah must have been rough around the edges hard-nosed racer um he was a handful but we beat him and it was his place and i, I think he got himself in trouble as i recall because i think he was a little quicker than we were but you know nonetheless we ended up in victory lane it was fun so I love going to different tracks. Um, that was uh, something I figured out really, really early on. Um, I love Sanair. I just was fell in love with that place. That was the place I fell in love with racing and decided I wanted to do it. So um, I remember Alan Kowicki died, and I won one of those races. And I remember thinking, I'm going to do a Polish victory lap for Alan Kowicki at Sanair. So that was pretty cool. I remember doing that. I've got a great picture of that car, uh, my Aries body car, going backwards around the track. Uh, in honor of uh, Alan Kowicki, because I think it was, wasn't, maybe it was 94 when I did that. I can't remember because he had just passed away. Um, and I think it was, he had just won the championship the year before. I think well, it was Well, I'm, I'm looking at your list here. You won in June of 93 at San Air, So that's, that's about right. That's the timeline. He had, he did yeah. uh, April 1st that year. So. Yeah. So it was, it was, it was a big deal for me. And obviously it was just an honor because I was a big Kawiki fan at the time. And I loved, I loved that end of that championship with him against Davey Allison and the year before huge NASCAR fan all my life have been, um, especially when I got into the racing. But. What goes into you're going to a new track you've never been to before. Kind of what's the checklist in your head as you're trying to get a grip on it. Are you talking to, some of the other guys that are around there, are you trying to figure it out all on your own? I've always been curious. By the time I went and started helping my Uncle Pat, he had kind of already been to all these other tracks, so I never really got to see the process. <laughs> well, I think, you know, the way I remember is we kind of stumbled through it early on because, um, well, to a degree, uh, we, we had somebody on our team that had an amazing amount of experience at a lot of tracks. My Uncle Frankie. Uh, Cause he'd been with Bobby dragon through all those years, you know, all through the seventies. I think he, I think he started racing with Bobby in the late sixties, you know, so he raced all these different types of racetracks. So certainly Neil, Pete, myself, Jeremy, all these guys, we all relied on, on his expertise and his uh, input early on as to what to expect. But I think as a, as a tour, you know, we were so new to traveling to these different tracks. Tom started dragging us to, um, you know, well, I think we all kind of stumbled through it. Uh, but you, the other thing I really remember back then is, is, uh, the setups were more pliable. Uh, they, they were, you know, they weren't so track dependent. I mean, other than gears, you know, we had to figure out what the hell gears you're going to run. Um, and, and I think, I think ACT even kind of helped us with that, as I recall, 
Um, but you know, you do a little homework to find out what kind of gear ratio you're going to have to run at the track and, and you go with that. And then, um, cause at that time frame, I think that's when we went and started in, um, God, I think that was about the time frame we went to quick change rear ends or, or became an option in the mid nineties, as I recall, um, which was nice because then you could have a lot of options for gear ratios, uh, pretty, pretty quick and easy, um, over the original four nine inch that we used to run. But, uh, that was it. Cause, uh, you know, a lot of the setups we ran were the same setup at every track or very similar setups with little tweaks, you know, and, and obviously as we all got more, you know, the expertise grew and the technology changed, you know, you start having to change your setup for every track later in the nineties and, and probably by more like the early two thousands for sure, big changes. But, uh, that's how I remember it, Tom. We stumbled through it. Uh, you, I think you stumbled through it. That, that's you're underestimating <laughs> what you did there because I, there's I, all, yeah. I had some guys. You can tell I was stumbling through it. Just drive the damn car, Brian. Shut up and drive the car. Yeah. No, I was. Uh, um, yeah, I mean that that was one thing that we always had, and, and I've always been very very fortunate to have is really good people. You know, I mean Frankie and Neil uh, were you know both of our geniuses in their own right. Um, they're stupid smart with the math. Does that make sense? Stupid smart? Yeah. Probably not. But needless to say, they're they're really really good, and and uh, and their memory is not like mine. It's a lot better than mine, thankfully, um, because they made me look good a lot of times. So it was it was a lot of fun. You know, they were really creative and and uh, and did a great job. And and you know, we we massaged that car year after year after year after year. You know, it's funny because so many guys, and, and he, including later in my life, Rick you know, building new cars and, and making them go fast. We just, back then we were like, I don't see why I'd build a new car. You know, let's just keep tweaking on this one. Let's keep tweaking on this one. So um, we kept it in fairly good shape. I mean, it wasn't like we did rebuild it completely several times, but we did. It was fun. Good, That's good. I, I still, I can't get over that. The, the, that was the same car that you drove yep. your whole career. I really did not know that. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, it was. And I mean, and, and it wasn't always a Dodge either. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I don't know if you're right yeah. or not, but that was a fun one. We'll, we'll get there. <laughs> and I want to get to some Douye stories too, before this is over. I don't, Tom, do you know Jeremy Douye at all? I've heard the name. You're the only guy in Vermont who hasn't drank exactly. with him, I think. Yeah. Well, the mayor. Yeah. He's the mayor. We'll, we'll get to that. He's, he's amazing. <laughs> um, <laughs> All right. So um, I want to skip ahead a couple of years because, you know, you, you did win a bunch of races. You're mostly you were competing on the tour, but you were really um, focusing on the weekly stuff at Airborne, as I recall, um, and, and doing well. But when ACT, when the pro stock deal crumbled at the end of 95, um, that's when NEPSA starts uh, coming along uh, and trying to fill the void. And Wes Moody had a tour in New York and Ontario for a little while, the Hooters, uh, Ho- the Hooterade series. Right. Yeah. And your father had a, had a pro stock and you got behind the wheel of that and, and chased a couple of those races out in New York. And, and you, uh, this is a, a race that I've never really talked to you about, but I've always wanted to know, uh, the Coca-Cola 250 over at Evans Mills Speedway. And from what I understand, you spanked them all that day. Yeah, we really did. Ninety six. Well, yeah. I, did, I did. I took I took the checkered flag and I and I. Uh, um. So here's a little little tidbit for you. That was my ACT car. I mean, that was my late model. That was the really. Steve yeah, that was not a pro stock car. So, so we went over there with my late model motor. Uh, we put a four barrel carb on it, as I recall. 
we put the big tires on it and we said, let's go for them. What the hell do we got to lose? So we went over there and boy, did we piss off some people. That was so much fun. They were so mad at how fast we were. Um, there was some nuances about the car. And I guess one of the things is we didn't have like, I just remember getting yelled at by people. They were just pissed off. You know, it was, it was always the wives yelling at me. I don't know why, but um, I'm going to the, <laughs> literally walking from the tech area to the ticket booth after the race. Uh, because I had to go to the ticket booth to count my money because they paid mm-hmm. me. And I had like six big guys all around me as I counted $7,500 in cash and mostly in fives and tens. You want to talk about friggin' nervous. <laughs> yeah. You had illegal mufflers. I'm like, really? Uh... Okay. If you say so, I mean, I, I don't know. What, I guess it was too loud for him, but, but actually, you know, we weren't fastest guy there. Fastest guy was some guy named Dennis Demers. Dennis with Demers. A- late model i mean act tour car and he was so fast but um but he made a couple errors um in that race and and it was fun to capitalize because i i was starting to you know learn a lot and um there's one thing that i i i've always tried to be a student in the sport i always figured um to this day my my mo is i would rather surround myself with people smarter than me and let them do their job really, really well. And I'll do my job really, really well. And, and at times I haven't done that very well, um, for sure. And sometimes I have, but I've always taken my job as a driver to be very, very serious and, and learn the art of driving and, and the craft and, and analyze the hell out of my mistakes. And, um, I was pretty proud of myself that day because Dennis was at that point was, a was really, really fast. Wasn't really known to be completely, uh, uh, I couldn't necessarily completely trust him. Uh, and I remember him being on my bumper with 15 or 20 to go. And I remember pointing him to my outside and, uh, I made him go to my outside and I got him out there and, and, uh, and I ran the shit out of him, but I kept him there right to the checkered flag, except the white flag. I think I, 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 yeah, we, we were literally, cause I knew he couldn't do, I knew he couldn't go around me. I was just afraid of him rooting me out of the way. Um, so I figured if he's out here, he can't root me and I've got him in the control spot. And, um, we won that race and he was so, he was disappointed as hell cause he knew he had a way faster car than we did, but he had got himself in trouble with a couple of local guys, as I recall, but that was a really big win for us. I've got a really big ass trophy still. And I've got a really big check. You know, those big checks they give you. Yeah. Yeah. Anything it's still on the wall. That's pretty cool. I spent the 7,500 pretty quick though. I bet. Good God. This is. I, again, I didn't know there was a pro stock car at one point though. Wasn't there? Yeah. Okay. All right. That was fun. My dad bought a Dick Anderson car out of Florida. Right. I'm talking about it. Can I say this cheater car? Holy shit. No, it was a, it was a house straight rail car and um, it had one of those bodies on it. it had a, it was a Dodge body. Yeah. So that's why we bought it. Um, and uh, you know, Dick Anderson kind of put the deal together and he was a, just a South Florida uh, hot shoe um, in the super late models down there. I mean, a big, big, big name. His picture and, was in uh, every stock car racing magazine, every uh, issue. Yep. And mind you, he had checkers down the side that uh-huh. into the picture later. Cause we fell in love with the checkers down the side on his, on that car that eventually found its way to my car pretty quick and stayed there for, for a few years. Um, but anyways, that car was, uh, it came and it was just this wedge body it was that super late model, um, outlaw kind of car. That really had some unbelievably talented hand fabricated. It, it just reminded me of those cars you saw that Junior Hanley ran at the, uh, at the speed weeks back in the eighties, just wedge bodies. So that thing showed up. My dad, 
doesn't know what the hell he's doing. Our crew all gets together. We go to Oxford. Stan Meserve walked over, shook his head, and said, that is not going to work. That is that, that thing right there is going to ruin this series. So I'm going to let you run. I think he added weight at us. You know, it instantly he's like, no, no way. He was the head tech. And, and yeah. So it didn't take long for us to figure out. We ran a couple of races. Mind you, we got completely screwed on that car. And uh, I won't, I sh- uh, yeah, I should just throw him under the bus. Big, big Mopar guy down south that built that motor totally screwed us. And we, we blew the motor. I mean, the motor was junk after we finally took it apart and found out what they gave us for, for nuts and bolts and that thing. But anyways, um, the following year, we mounted a new body on it. And I did drive it a couple times. Had a little fun with it over at Canaan one time. We were pretty fast, but uh, we we never got that car going real, real well. My dad also crashed it a couple times really, really hard. Um, and it and it meant an untimely demise there. I think, as I recall, chopping it up and putting it in the dumpster at one point after one of the more horrific crashes. He had two really bad wrecks with that. Uh, Sir Key St. Croix up in Quebec. Um, there was a car stopped in the back straightaway, and my dad did, didn't see that car. Beaver Dragon did, and my dad didn't, and it was at high speed on the back straightaway. And I think that was where it met its demise. And that's a fast, fast racetrack, too. Down that back straight, it was real fast and, and uh, totaled the car, just ripped the mm-hmm. whole right off, right off, right side off it. Wonder nobody got hurt. So <clears throat> it's during this period in the uh, mid to late 90s, say 95, 6, 7, 8, where it's a three car show. And I, I don't care who you ask. You go to Airborne, or you go to Thunder Road. And it's you, and it's Phil Scott, and it's my boss, Mike Bruno. You throw in Pete Fecto every now and then. But I'm telling you, that was, and Tom, I'm sure that you remember all this uh, from the grandstand side. That that was amazing to watch you three guys just, uh, you know, most of the time it was clean, but some of the time you just beat the hell out of each other. We did. You know, we had some really great battles. I mean, it certainly reminds me of a couple of stories I uh I got to go back to 1995. You mentioned Pete Fecto for a moment. I should have won the championship in 95. Um, I gave it to uh, Ferno. Um, I was running second to Pete Fecto at the end of a 100-lap ACT tour race. And Pete kept opening up and down and turning three and four. He'd drift up the track a little bit in the center. He was tight. And so I'd stick my nose in there, and he'd chop it back off coming off four. So he'd go in, go up, come back down. Where are and we? What, what track? Uh, Airborne Raceway. Airborne. It was last race of the year. And uh, I was second in points, except at that point in the race, uh, Alex Ferno was, I think, you know, running fifth, sixth, seventh. And all I had to do was beat him by like one spot. So we were in the catbird seat. Literally, if I finish second, I win the championship. But I don't like finishing second. And uh, it was Pete Fecto in front of me. And and so I knew it was a risky move because sometimes you had to be careful not to get a and make sure you had your tetanus shot when you went by his car. But and I was always afraid of the right. I was, there was, there was, well, I mean, he just, he was a great driver and he was always fast. Um, but, uh, the cars were a little rough cause he was a little rough, you know, and, and he kept running up the track and running back down the track, really inconsistent. And I'm like, he does that on the last lap and I'm taking that spot. Eight tires are better than four and I'm going to go for it. Cause I think I can still make the checkered flag and uh, win this thing. And even if I wreck, cause he's probably going to wreck. Me. Um, he did. And I didn't. <laughs> So I get underneath him. He comes down and and he cuts my right front tire down. I instantly, I go to the turn four wall 
And all I know is, man, that checkered flag is right there. I've got to finish this race. I've got to beat Inferno. It didn't happen. I mean, the wall's like a magnet. Bam, 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 bam. And I do cross the finish line, ninth or 10th. Inferno goes by, takes the championship. My mom, I don't think she talked to me for a week. She was so freaking mad. I've never seen my mom more disappointed and mad at me for that move because she was like, you had the fucking championship, you jackass. She didn't say that, but that's what her body language said. Um, and uh, here's the kicker. Facto had an illegal motor. <laughs> he, got he got freaking tossed for an illegal motor. I would have won the championship and the race. But uh, lessons learned. I guess it's good to lose sometimes. Did Lance Ferno send you a Christmas card or no? No. <laughs> no, or or Jeff LeCare. Son of a bitches. Now, did you actually learn that lesson, or do you think if we went out there today and it was in the same same exact scenario, you'd probably do the same thing again? <laughs> Trust me when I say I, I learned a lot of lessons out of that deal. You know, uh, there was there was many, many lessons learned out of that deal because uh, it was heartbreaking, obviously. I mean, it was just devastating because that was the championship. And I thought I was doing everything right, man, because I even waited because I trust me, I had thought about making that move for 10 laps in a row because he kept opening the door. Um, so I knew he was going to come down, but it was just a matter of, OK, let's set this thing up and let's let's try to get far enough up in there so he can't damage your right front tire. That didn't work. And um, so, yeah, I mean, it, you know, when you're running for the championship, absolutely, that's not the time to pull that move. Not with, you know, it's not worth it. If you want the championship, it's not worth it. Um, I've always gone for race wins, but I can tell you what, I was always really good at running for championships. And that was a lesson learned right there. Um, that one position, you know, or I also learned a few ways that I might have made that pass work and not wreck too because i've certainly thought about how that might have worked as well but um i don't but if you put me in that same position i uh i i I definitely would have would have finished second to pete fecto i mean he was running a great race you know and and and, um to take the championship home i mean what i felt the devastation i felt out of giving that thing away with you know 400 feet to go at airborne at my home track you're still not over it No, hell no, I'm not. I mean, you know, it was was one of those moments. I mean, let's face it, racing is humbling as shit. It really is humbling. And that was one of those races that humbled the hell out of me. I mean, I'm, you know, uh, it was uh, the crew. Nobody was pretty particularly happy with my move in the center of turns three and four there. And and neither was I, you know, it was was rough. It was really rough. But it was was a lesson learned. And and, uh, that propelled us on to, you know, four championships in a row. So it was shortly thereafter. So we certainly, uh, and, and a couple of track championships. So we, we learned a lot through those times, you know, I mean, early on, every driver's got to test their, you know, they watch what happens on TV and, and, um, you gotta, you gotta try some things to learn it the hard way. And I certainly did all those just like everybody else, you know, it helps the hard way. 98 dominate seven wins and it all culminates with the milk bowl and the mm. nearly perfect sweep mm-hmm. of the milk. If it wasn't for my freaking father with my tires on, I haven't let that one go either. What's the, uh, best, 
Peter Abear, my best friend Peter Abear, spotting for my dad in that race. The least he could have done was told him, "Hey, Brian's coming. He's got a chance to win on the whole fucking thing. Could you just slow down a little bit?" He he was nice enough to give you his tires. Did, all right. Did, but, did, well, did your dad know that you were back there? Did, was he looking in the no, mirror at all? No, no idea. No, it was. It's funny because uh, that was that was the <laughs> that was the year that Tom said, "Have at it, boys. Soak your tires. Good luck. I'm going to sell more tires." And and he sold a lot of tires because. You know, everybody was soaking their tires. They're wearing through them. We're doing everything we can to make the softest tire combo. And, and boy, did we have some soft tires. Um, again, back to some of the geniuses I had on my crew. Uh, Frankie's an engineer. Um, <laughs> they, they, they came up with some with some funky shit to uh, soften tires with and the processes. And um, I'm certain that all of us will probably have uh, less years on our life because of the shit we did to those tires back in 1998. But anyways, they were really good. But I remember Tom Curley coming up at the milk bowl and, and don't get me wrong. We had a better car. We, that car was that same car. And my dad was driving the ham key car that we had built in 98. It was brand new. Um, at, at that time, uh, Tony Andrews was on our team and, and uh, actually uh, Mark Lanthier came back from down South and brought that Hamkey car and worked for a short period of time with us. And he's the one that started the process, but then he went on doing his own thing. We hired Tony Andrews to come on board with us and Tony finished that car. <clears throat> and it was designed at that time as a primary backup car for me. And my dad was only going to run a few races. So we had the 45 that year. I'd gone to a new style and, and uh, of the five. So it was kind of squared off. So all we had to do was literally just adapt it. We could make a six out of it for my dad. So he was racing that car and we had never got that car as good as my car. We just hadn't spent the time. I drove it, didn't like it as much, just didn't like the feel of it. There's never, never fell in love with it. I was in love with that other car. So we show up the track, we got our tires, Curly's going around car to car, derometering tires. And he comes up to mine and, you know, I think mine derometered at like 45 or something ridiculously soft, mm. you know, but racing slick today is, you know, 65 or something. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're leaving rubber as you're just literally driving away to, to, to go into the, uh, you know, idling away or pushing the car. It was so soft, you know, and he, he texts my, he derometers my dad's tires. And he looks at my dad and goes, you got screwed. And then just walks away. <laughs> So we win the pole, we win the pole position, we win the first segment. <clears throat> I think we bolted on another set of tires because I don't remember back then having a tire rule, um, as I recall. And all I know is the last segment somewhere, <laughs> Peter Abair, the way I remember it is Peter Abair is like, screw it, take his tires, put his tires on because there was no rule against it back then. You know, you didn't have to have a you know, this specific six set of six tires or whatever. So they put those car, those tires on my dad's car. He started at the front and just walked away with it. I'm coming from the back. I get up to second place. And, and uh, my dad always said, well, if I'd known you were in second, I'd have backed off. I, you know, would that have been legit? No. And it would have sucked it to literally say that, but you know, I still haven't forgiven him. Anyways. It's a better story this way. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was an awesome race car and, and it was on rails. You know, we were, we were obviously very dominant and it was fun. Those are different days though, you know, and obviously, uh, like you said, Phil Scott and I, um, you know, it was leading up to some big, big motor rule changes. Um, obviously the two of us were helping single-handedly create that. Um, 
that, that guy Rick Payo was building his motors and nothing but trouble there. Mm. But, you know, that was, that was uh, obviously we were all both very, very fast. But our teams were really, really good too. You know, we were really gelled, and and uh, there was a lot of things going for us at that time to be successful. It, it wasn't always, it wasn't always nice though. No, no. I mean, we had our share. We had our fair share of uh, run-ins. You know, I mean, I think when you're when you're that competitive, um, obviously Phil's very competitive, and I think he always said I was his nemesis, and there's no there's no doubt. Um, I think, I don't think I looked at him the same way, uh, just because of my age and, and, uh, naivety. I, I, I don't think I really, I, I don't think I really cared. I was just like, whatever, man, he's, he's the next fastest guy. I got to go beat him. I got to figure out a way to beat him. You know, um, certainly there was some times, I mean, I, I remember completely dumping him at, uh, Cirque St. Croix and, uh, <laughs> I don't, it, thinking he was blocking me i don't know if he actually was but i remember mentally that was that was my thought and and uh it was pretty well ingrained in my head if somebody blocks you for two or three laps in a row you've got the right to dump him <laughs> so i don't know I, I dumped him uh that caused a little bit of chaos in, in our relationship uh for for a little while <laughs> finally we all got over that I, I i probably learned that you know just dumping people you know never goes well. I, I'm not saying that was the last guy I ever dumped, but you know, you had to have a really, really good reason for it. So, and this would be uh, after the, the deal at airborne, right? When you lost the championship. <laughs> well, I, I still had more learning to do, Justin. Obviously. I was in 1995. I, yeah. I mean, I've, I've been learning all the way up through uh, 2015. Uh, so, you know, you, yeah. Well, and there's that CRS. So, you know, three, four mm. years later, I probably forgot what I learned. So I had to relearn it again. So eventually, how does Bush North come calling your name? 1999, um, the, the heat was getting hot, you know, if you can't stand the, stand the heat in the kitchen. So we were really good. We were fast. We, we, um, we were running airborne full-time, Thunder Road full-time, and the series full-time, and um, it went on to clinch all three championships, but it wasn't quite that simple. You know, there was a lot of politics involved. There was a, there was a lot of the hoopla about our Dodge motor and, and Phil Scott's Ford motor, um, which was, I think that was the first year Chris Michaud ran the, the crate motor, uh, that Tom bought for him to, you know, to test for the season. Um, I, I think that was, as I That's recall. Right. Yeah, it is. Yeah. So, you know, there was a lot of that going on you can look back and see the the crystal ball of hindsight but for us you know <laughs> uh there is a time when when a when a promoter has to has to welcome um one of his superstars to move on and, and it was getting to that point uh with tom he was kind of getting to the point with you know i i knew he always liked and respected and appreciated us and, and our race team uh, because I, I still tried to be a good partner and a good, and a good, um, a good star for him and, uh, promote ACT the right way. And, and I was not a fighter. I didn't want to fight with him and his crew and his, and his, and his, uh, tech. Um, but inevitably we were in tech all the time mm -hmm. and inevitably there was a lot of pressure on the tech guys about that damn Dodge, uh, because you know, it was 95% Chevy products out there. And you got one or two Dodges doing really well, and you got one Ford or one or two Fords, and they're doing really well, and it's pissing people off. So, and of course, the rumors were going about what we were spending our engines, and that was 
an unfair rumor on our end. I mean, I, I do believe that that the Ford uh, Phil Scotts was getting expensive. Um, we were, but but I had the benefit of family. Um, uh, back to the Woodwards, my my cousins. Neil and his brother Joey uh, were helping build our motors, and, and at that point, we got really successful with them and building them, and you know, quality so they would last. But they weren't that expensive, so all these things were adding up, and we got into we got into trouble in tech down at Thunder Road, and um, Dan Beatty tossed me from a race, and we always felt like there was some politics at play there because um, Jesus, one of the best. Justin helped me out. I beat him by one freaking point. Oh, for the championship, the milk yeah. bowl. What are you? What are we talking about? Uh, you had Eric Williams out there. You had so you know, Eric. Okay. Williams, the this whole is nineteen ninety nine. Yeah, this is nineteen ninety nine. You know, and 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 it was getting really tight. It was looking like we were going to clinch the Airborne Championship and the and the ACT Tour. And we'd already done ninety seven, ninety eight, and now it's looking like we're going to get our fourth uh, tour championship in a row, our third third one in a row but fourth overall and you know i think tom just didn't want us to win the thunder road championship too because it was just too much dude stop go away and so you know when you come into tech and and uh and of course i'm demonstrating so i gotta get this to so the listener can understand <laughs> you come into tech every time and and, it, and and this is now working on nine years of habits all right the helmet comes off and you put it as far to the right of the car and you, oh, yeah. as you can't and, and you know, every racer does this because you have a left maximum left side weight. And, and I grab a roll bar over here and I start pulling and I probably throw my gloves over there and, and I'm pulling like a son of a bitch as I pull up on that thing, you know, and it's worth but like a tenth or two on the left side weight. And so that was just, we set the thing up at maximum. We would set that thing up at 56.1 if I sat normal and 56.0 if I even remotely leaned and I could make it 55.9 percent left side weight everybody did that well i got on that scale that night and bambi walked right over and said grab your helmet grab your gloves put it in your put it in your lap put your hands on the steering wheel uh-oh that's not good fuck i've pissed somebody off <laughs> 56.1 you're out yeah oh shit this is real you just got tossed and it was like a top three you know a top three finish so they put me back in the points right there at Thunder Road, and instantly I was like, shit, they're after me. They do not want me to win this championship. So naturally that put us on edge, you know, and, and we were uh, we were like, oh, shit, we're not just fighting the competition now. I think we're fighting, uh, we're fighting the tower. And uh, so who I, who I thought, you know, liked and respected me and whatnot was, was all of a sudden it was a new feel. It was just a different feel. Hmm. Um, and, and that started, uh, that started to unravel some, you know, uh, certainly created some hard feelings for me, for sure, for the first time ever. Cause at that point in my career, yeah, Tom Curley could do no wrong in my eyes. I mean, he was, he was, yes, he could be that, that, that badass that just caused chaos and went off the handle and whatnot. But I usually dodged that shit and went under the radar. I mean, I was pretty good at that. I had an old man with a short fuse, so I, was, I learned early on in life, try not to piss Curly off and you're going to be better off for it. So, you know, um, that's what I did. Well, all of a sudden I'm like, fuck, I did something wrong, man, because he, this is, this is, this is not normal, you know? So that's what happened. And, and that, um, on top of 
it seemed like we were just simply getting welcome to, to maybe start thinking about something else. Um, so we were, you know, did, that's did he have we that conversation with, did he pull you aside and say, you know, what are you doing next year? No, um, not the following year. Um, the following year we, we had a pretty brief conversation, uh, early on. Well, it wasn't, it, it was probably 20, 25 minutes behind a trailer and uh, my trailer. And, uh, I missed an entire practice because of it. Um, but <laughs> probably uh, by design on his part. Oh, absolutely. by yeah. his. Part. Yeah. We had to get that out of our system, but you know, um, we respected each other more for it. It was pretty heated. Um, but it was really honest. It was really candid. And, um, you know, what happened at the 99, after the 99 season, we still ended up winning it. We won the championship by one point. And, and it was uh, dramatic. Yeah. Yeah. And there was just no denying it. And it was, a, it was a really good run. It was great racing. Eric, I mean, he was, he's, you know, I would never call him the hometown hero because he, he had lovers and haters because he was just that kind of, that kind of guy and that kind of racer, hard nosed racer. But, but he uh, certainly, I think at that point, everybody wanted to see him win over me because I'd won everything else. So um, certainly uh, uh, it was a big win for us. And we went into the, uh, I had a buddy, Chris Fisher, that when he won the 98 airborne championship, he had the most iconic uh, championship speech ever. The guy's like a poet, man. He rhymes and just, just this, he's got this great sense of humor and he, he puts this whole championship poem together and it was hilarious. So I have three speeches to give in 1999. Oh, yeah. So my sister helped me create one funny one. Well, I'm just not as funny as Chris Fisher, evidently. And it went off really badly, <laughs> really badly. It's like a comedian up there, just epic fail. I should have stuck to driving race cars because, uh, um, you know, the first two, che- first two speeches were kind of like just genuine and sincere and, and normal. <laughs> and the third one was like, let me – you know, slam the shit out of Dan Beatty and, and, uh, and, and, and do a lot of that kind of just, just, just pull some punches. And it was like a roast <laughs> and, and there was hardly a laugh because everybody was like, is Curly going to fucking toss him right here at the championship banquet? How's he going to, yeah, that was, it was just quiet. It was weird. And I was like, damn, this is almost like 1995 uh, wrecking myself to try to win that championship. It was bad. You know, it was really bad. Um, so Curly throws a 200 pound weight penalty on the Dodgers and the Fords that winter because of that speech, probably, but no, <laughs> no, uh, he had a problem and, and the Dodgers yeah. and the Fords were a problem. So he came up with a solution, yeah. bang, 200 pound weight penalty. So we knew instantly that we couldn't, we couldn't win with 200 extra pounds. I mean, there's just no way it was, it was too big a penalty. Oh, and, and uh, I think it was, um, uh, there was something else, a heavier flywheel, or I don't remember what it was, but it was something. And uh, we just said, this isn't going to work. You know, there's no way we're going to go back and win a championship. And we weren't ready to go bush racing, but we were shopping for bush cars at the time and planning to go in 2001. So we were kind of just getting prepped. We ended up buying two Bush North cars from Kelly Moore that that season, that winter. But the other thing we did is we literally put up, and we were good at this kind of shit, we put a lockdown policy on our shop door, you know, because it was a party spot. It was a spot where friends could hang out and, and come, come down. But primarily just our team, well, we put a locked door policy and didn't tell anybody what we were doing. And we took off the, uh, the Dodge body and we put a Chevy Monte Carlo body on it. And 
Um, we modeled it after uh, David. I used to go to the Speed Weeks for, you know, like four years in a row. And uh, I saw, if you know the name David Rogers, again, you know, rest in peace, but a uh, great racer from Florida. Uh, won a lot of races in Florida in the, in the uh, uh, Speed Weeks. Great super late model racer. So we show up down there one time and he had a, he had a Chevy dressed up as a Dodge, a Dodge Intrepid. And I was like, that'll work. So we put this Chevy Monte Carlo body on, we dressed it up as a Dodge Intrepid. I put stickers all over the thing and, you know, we used the Dodge moniker at the time or whatever it said, uh, this is different or it's different or something. I forget what Dodge was using. And it was a Dodge Intrepid. We went with an all white car with checkered flags down the side and the, uh, the red and black number 45. So we changed it up big time. Never told a soul, built the Chevy motor, put that thing in there. And we showed up at airborne. Now, what happened was Dave Moody and I got into a pissing match. Um, it, it, it's weird how it goes, but I don't remember if he was interviewing me or, or how it went down on the phone. But um, I, oh, I think what it was was on his show, you know, he said something to the effect of me cheating at Thunder Road. And I was, I, you know, I had, I blew my top with him. I'm like, fuck you i didn't cheat as i was doing everything everybody else was doing they just fucking screwed me all right this is how this deal went down and he i remember him saying to me on the phone anything else you want to say to me this is going to be your last chance <laughs> and i was like he caught me off guard and i'm like uh-oh what's that mean and he goes now yeah, go ahead you want to swing anymore go for it this is your last shot and i was like nope that's all i got to say Okay, so I don't know how that got translated exactly, um, but it didn't get translated the way it went down because I told it just the way I, I mean, I, I think you guys know me at this point. I, I just say what's on my mind. I say it the way it is and, and, uh, and very honest. Well, because that's the way it happened, you know, and, and it doesn't make what I was doing at 56.1 right, but it's what everybody was doing. Right. And you know, all of a sudden they're after me. So that's just the way I felt. He called me a cheater. I didn't like it. I got defensive and I was always very defensive about shit like that. So I defended myself. Well, I don't know how that translation went to Tom Curley, but in the spring for the Remington shootout in 2000, the first thing we do is we show up with this white car and it's very different looking. It's a Monte Carlo in disguise. It looks like a Dodge. We roll across the scales and they're like, nope. I mean, they were waiting for us. Mm-hmm. Nope. You're like, look again, look again. You know, this is how we're starting the season off. Look again. Just look a little closer. Open the hood. They dropped the hood. And I, I, I can't, I want to say it was Dean Gallison at that point, but I remember them smiling and going, shaking their head and they're going, you motherfuckers. Good for you. Good for you. Go get the fuck out of here. Well, Curly hadn't had his shot at me yet. So he drags me out behind the trailer and reads me the riot act. And now it comes back to my speech. It comes back to the conversation I had with Dave Moody. And Dave, I think, had kind of um, maybe, I don't know, exaggerated some of the things I said or translated them wrong or, I don't know, maybe my CRS. Maybe I said shit. I, I don't remember. But I it, all I know is Tom was just, whoa, whoa, whoa. That's not what happened. And so we went right back at it, and I said, let's talk right about when I got thrown out at Thunder Road. And I told how it went down. 
I don't know between you and me. I always felt like he knew from the get-go, but he could look me in the eye right then and there and be like, you know, and act like he knew it because he acted surprised and like, oh, like, like Dan Beatty was the guy that was behind all that decision. And maybe he was, I don't know, you know, but I know how it all went down. But at the end of that conversation, he's like, all right. And, and matter of fact, he was like, <laughs> I don't think he fully comprehended that the car sitting at the back of my trailer was a Chevy at that point. And so we went out and proceeded to win the Chevy, the, the, I mean, excuse me, the Remington shootout with the Chevy. And we went on to win the championship with that car again that year as a Chevy. And that was the, that was, uh, we rebuilt our relationship right then and there because the respect level for him with our race team went up to here because we, we came back. He threw a curveball at us. We dodged. We didn't piss and moan. We didn't whine and cry. We didn't go public with this thing. We just came and we said, we're going to build a winning race car again. We'll work with your rules. We don't like them. We want a real dodge under the hood, but we understand. So here we go. We'll prove to you that we're good enough to win with a Chevy. And we did. So it was fun. And we had a great race car and, and that was it. And uh, don't ask about how I did in the Bush North series that year for the two attempts oh, I man. made. But I don't yeah. think I made the race and we sucked. But, um, but that led us, uh, we did get an open pass. I always felt like, which was really odd because I always felt like uh, Tom would, uh, you know, really, really uh, be pissed at me if I went somewhere else. Uh, I think he was, at that point, pretty proud of us and what we'd accomplished. And I was still a pain in his ass at that point. And I think he wanted to see me move on. And um, I truly believe he thought maybe I had a chance at, you know, perhaps making it down South, you know, those kind of conversations were starting to happen. Um, Did I have the talent to make it down there? And um, we were looking at ways to maybe make that happen originally. And, um, and I had a couple phone calls that made me think that, there was opportunities there from, and, who? Uh, from who? well there was uh, the national dodge dealers association uh, at the time or not national dodge dealer council um a guy that was the dealer council he was the national dealer council guy he was a dealer dodge dealer um as i recall he was from the boston area and knew my dad from from years ago uh, but he was the big wig for National Dodge at the time for all the Dodge dealers. So he had massive connections at that moment. You know, and I remember him calling my dad. My dad sitting me down and said, I got an interesting phone call. You know, he uh, watched us try to qualify at Loudoun. And, um, you know, we didn't, we didn't, I, I didn't think I qualified that year. I know I didn't qualify at, at Watkins Glen. Um, you know, talk about different, but anyways, he was, he was really impressed with where we had come from, knew a lot about me, was really interesting and, and asked if I wanted some doors open. Now, at the same time, I was having conversations with some guy, what's his name? Ken Squire. Have you heard of him? Yeah, no. I was having conversations with him too. And, um, and I never had that kind of conversation, sit down conversation with Tom Curley. We just didn't have that. Uh, but I knew he had a lot of respect for me and my race team. And, uh, Ken and Ken had and I had had a couple phone conversations, and uh, one of them was, "You need to lose weight," and that was in 1999. Brian, you need to lose weight. Yes, sir. If you want to have a chance, if you ever want a chance, you cannot continue to be the 235 pound whale that you are now. <laughs> and so you need to lose weight. You need no to. Kidding. Well, it, it. I remember 
noticing a difference in the victory lane pictures from year to year. You look at the the annual program every year. That's yep. where that came from. Yep. There was two things that happened in 2000 that, that made me lose weight. It was simply uh, when Ken Squire tells you, if you want a chance to go South and make it big time, you need to lose weight. That's one. And the second was my daughter, Rachel was born. And uh, the first day I held her in my arms and I went, Oh shit. I guess I'm not just living for myself anymore. You know, <laughs> you can talk about wives all you want. And I love her dearly, but all of a sudden you're holding your baby in your arms and you know, changes everything. So I was like, yep, time to lose weight. I got to get in shape. And uh, from October of that year, it was truly in October, it was in 2000, this conversation actually happened um, with, with Ken Squire. And, and that was because I had now run the Bush North race or tried to um, perhaps run, I might have even tried qualifying for two of them at Loudoun. Um, that was when they, that phone call came, my daughter was born. And so from October of 2000 to January, wow, well, let's, let's say the beginning of the race season, 2001, when I went Bush North racing full time and ran for rookie of the year, I had, I had lost, uh, you know, 45 pounds and I was really in pretty good shape for the start of the 2001 Bush North series rookie of the year campaign. And, um, and I maintained that, that level. And I stayed really, really serious about my fitness um, until 2015 when I didn't have to fit in that race suit every, every year. But needless to say, anyways, that's uh, that was. And so there was some that conversation, those conversations fizzled out pretty quick because um, I remember having a real serious sit down conversation with my dad. And he goes, man, I'll support you in whatever you want to do. If you want to go south, that's great. Um Probably what's not going to happen is I'm not probably going to wait for you to go spend the next 10 years uh, trying to make it down south and and then come back. If you think I'm just going to hang out at the dealership waiting for you to come back, probably not. you got to ask yourself, and this is why I remember the serious conversation, you got to ask yourself if, if you'd be satisfied being a regional superstar. You know, And I remember him saying guys like Robbie Crouch, Bobby Dragon, Dave Dion, you know, cause those are the big names we knew. And would you be happy becoming one of those guys or do you have to go South to, to prove to yourself that you're, you're good. And, um, and I remember making a decision, a very, very concerted decision uh, that I was not willing to sacrifice my Vermont life, my friends, my family and living in Vermont to go South to make it racing. Um, I had a wonderful business opportunity with my dad at, and in the dealership um, to provide a life for a family and, and stay in Vermont. So I didn't want to give that up at all risk to go south for the almighty. And by the way, I'm also starting to learn because once I got into the Bush North, you know, I started meeting people that had already tried it, you know, been there, tried it. Mm, yeah. um, and And the chances of actually making it all the way i got to meet you know the two names that got thrown out were you know i can introduce you to petty motorsports and ray everham and then in watkins Glen in 2000 i got to meet ray everham and have a couple conversations with ray everham now that was pretty exciting stuff for for a young guy coming off a act championship or, or you know or, or four whatever but anyways uh, but those all fizzled out very very quickly and we went bush north racing and then the racing, uh, you know, um, we, we got fully invested in Bush North racing and um, trying to be competitive and, and, and struggling, frankly, um, certainly never seeing the levels of successes that we did at ACT. 
um, having many good successes. We really, when you dig into them and, and uh, we, we had a lot of success, but not, not to the level because we were just a smaller, you know, we were smaller fish in a bigger pond and, and the technology was so hard to keep up with because it was changing so rapidly in the early 2000s. Um, it wasn't late models too, which made it really hard when I tried to come back with my own team. But, but uh, the Bush North series was, you know, directly bringing technology out of Mooresville, North Carolina, we were competing with on a weekly basis. And it was real fresh technology because that's when they were all going away from the traditional setups to the, you know, the light bar, big bars and light, light spring setups. And then eventually to, you know, bump stopping everything. And so there was, there was a lot of massive changes going on then. And, and that was hard to keep up with. Andy Santer spanked us like four years in a row and his cars and the guys coming out of the South continued to spank us. And, you know, we were just trying to keep up with it, literally just trying to keep up with the technology coming out of Mooresville. You were doing everything you can, man. You're making friends in Mooresville because you had to have friends in Mooresville, North Carolina to be competitive. You had to. You know, and that's where because that's where your speed was coming from in the in the uh, early two thousands from from the uh, in the Bush North series between Arrow between Arrow, you know the guy that was building our cars came from Mooresville and you know Mark Bo Galloway Bo built bodies and and uh, you know engines but it was really all about the chassis and suspension steve hibbert was a massive help to us early on uh, with the shock packages and uh, in 2002 we well 2001 i think it was like a 21 race schedule and you know we got our asses handed to us i mean we 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 were doing pretty well in the first half of the year when we had two cars to start and we were ready but it wore us down it wore us down big time and humbled the shit out of us by halfway through the year when we're just trying to keep up with everything, you know, between the travel, the hotels. I mean, we're leaving on Wednesdays at times. I, I'll still never forget Darren Ross who works for IBM. He's big D he's a great guy. You know, uh, he joined our team in probably around 2002 or three. I can't remember, but I remember at the end of the year one time him and I, cause he, he went hunting with Neil and I and my dad, and I was having a conversation at the end of the year. And he goes, you know, I took 18 vacation days to be on the race team this summer. 18. That's because he had a great, amazing job at IBM and took 18 vacation days to go racing. And that just, I'm like, how the hell are we? This is crazy. You know, we're showing up at Loudon on Wednesdays for a Saturday race. Stupid. You know, it's just crazy. So in 2002, we, we paired the schedule way back. We said, well, Let's, uh, we had a budget we were working with and it wasn't certainly the same as some, some of the budgets we were racing against. Um, but we had a budget we were working with and we said, let's spend the budget, but let's only race 10 times and see what our performance does. You know, we won two or three track championships, uh, track records and, and sat on the pole and won track records and New Hampshire being one of them. That was really cool. We held that record through for almost 10 years or so. Um, uh, that was with the help from Hibbert. And we, we set a time that was good enough to qualify for the back of the cup field. It was amazing. The car was a rocket ship. And uh, we did really well. Didn't win a race in 2002. Should have. Gave a couple away. Finished second a few times. You know, we had some really good runs. And it was a real eye-opener for some of the series officials. Because I remember us at the end of the year, at the beginning of the next year, having a conversation saying, hey, man, this – this 21 race schedule doesn't work for me. I mean, I, I can't speak for everybody else here, but 
you know, with the budget I'm, I'm running with 21 races and it's so hard to keep up with, you know, we had full-time employees, but even then we're working with full-time race. We're, we're racing against full-time race teams coming out of the South. And I mean, it's, it's just craziness. You know, it was just really, really hard to keep up with, but nonetheless, it's racing, it's humbling. And, um, and it kicked us right square in the ass and, and set us back, you know, and reminded us that there's still a lot of talent out there, unbelievable talent out there, um, you know, both in the in the fabrication of race cars and drivers. Um, and we still had plenty to learn. You know, we never got to that level we wanted to in the Bush North series, you know, but we had some fun doing it. We had some fun trying. I don't regret any bit of it. Um, it was it was a ton of fun. The tracks I got to see. Love to go to new tracks. You know? Well, I guess then how important was that win at Thunder Road then in 2003? That's uh, the only one you got in Bush North. Dennis Demers one time said, he said it best. He goes, uh, he, he talked about his trophy at Stafford. He won, a, won one race at Stafford. He goes, that's my million dollar trophy. <laughs> I got one of them. <laughs> Thunder Road. You know, it was uh, six years of racing full-time Bush North Series. And, uh, you know, it was a big deal did I get really drunk that night? Um, we had a huge party. We got kicked out. We almost got kicked out of the Mallets Bay campground because we were camping. Um, and, uh, Ellery Packard was on the team at that time. And boy, could that guy drink. And man, we had these big bottles of, uh, we'd learned about this gray goose vodka. The goose, the goose was loose that night. We party to like three in the morning and all but got kicked out it was great it was a big deal because obviously you know we've been chasing it chasing it chasing it and then to go and win the pole that race and, and to race dave dion and all these andy you know all those guys for the for the win it was just a, it was still i've got that picture um <laughs> i gotta remember what the hell the picture is of me leading that pack oh it's in my yeah. office at work but it was a big deal really big should have won i God, you know, there's another freaking nine races I should have won, but gave them away. Now we're going to stop here. We're going to stop. This is the end of part number one with Brian Hoare. And I feel it's like it's not over. It isn't over. But if you listened through part one and you're not interested in part two in a couple of days, and maybe we're just not the podcast for you. Yeah, check your pulse. <laughs> this is <it's> good stuff. <laughs> he gets, as we all did, after about two hours, a little more loose, a little more... Uh, fun? Fun, yeah. I don't know. Is that the right word? Sure. Sure. But part two coming in just a couple days, if you're listening to this on Wednesday. If you're mm-hmm. not, it might already be out, which... If you can go bang, bang, three hours, you're right there with us. If we had merch yet, yeah. we might be sending you for a free T-shirt if you did the straight the straight three hours. But alas, we don't yet. So no freebies. Make sure to like us and follow us on all the socials, Uncommon Deeds on Twitter and Facebook. We probably pay a lot more attention to the Facebook in terms of if you want to talk to us or you have any suggestions, anything, comments, that's probably the best place where we're going to answer you in a quick, timely fashion. Uh, But also, Instagram, we put up pretty much all the stuff that we do on the Facebook on there as well, and that's Mm -hmm. Uncommon Deeds Podcast, and part two coming in just a couple days. So this does it 
for part one of the Uncommon Deeds podcast with Brian Hoare. Stay tuned for part two.